The Legacy of John Williams Celebrating the music and the art of Maestro John Williams Hello and welcome, I am Maurizio Caschetto and this is a new episode of the Legacy of John Williams podcast. Today I have a special guest here with me. She is the principal pianist and keyboardist of the Los Angeles Philharmonic and she was appointed in 2001 by the then music director Essa Pekka Salonen and she has been featured with the LA Phil on multiple occasions both at the Hollywood Bowl and at the Walt Disney Concert Hall. She balances her life as an orchestra member with a busy career as a soloist, chamber musician, and recording artist. And this year, she had the distinct honor to work alongside Steven Spielberg as the featured solo pianist in his semi-autobiographical film, The Fablemans, scored by John Williams. At the personal invitation of John Williams, she recorded a varied collection of solo classical pieces as well as Williams' original score for the film. So please welcome my guest today, Joanne Pierce-Martin. Hello, Joanne. Nice to have you here. Hello, Maurizio. Nice to be here. It's a really a, a pleasure for me to have you here. And since, you know, you played a pretty big role in this work from John Williams, we'll center our conversation mostly around that. But at first, I want to also to touch a little bit upon your background, formations, and, and how you ended up being the LFL principal player. So how your career started and how you ended up being a classical musician? Well, uh, like a lot of young kids, I think, who were exposed to music at an early age, I was very fortunate to have that in that my father is an excellent amateur pianist and organist. And we had both of those instruments in the home. And um, he was an executive with the Allen Organ Company, uh, which made um, highly successful church organs, electronic church organs. Mm. And uh, so we were able to easily have one of those in our home and it was a wonderful instrument as well as a lovely piano. My dad played both of those things quite well. At a very early age, I expressed an interest, you know, three or four, daddy, you know, show me how to do that. So um, my first informal lessons were with my dad, just putting me on his lap and showing me how to do one little song with one finger. And then he accompanied me on the outer, <laughs> <laughs> registers of the piano and it went from that you know by the time I was five um, he got me a, a teacher in the area and everything just kind of went from there I I really took to it and I loved it and I was fortunate enough to have these good teachers early on to to guide me and I think like a lot of people <laughs> I was I was given some pretty challenging music right in the beginning. And in retrospect, sometimes you think, maybe I shouldn't have been playing that. <laughs> so difficult to start. You know, you, we, we always want to start with the, you know, with the stuff that we love, but usually it's very difficult. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that, that, that sort of happened. I, I became um, really serious about the piano at a, at a very early age, actually. And mm -hmm. I loved it. And I wasn't really forced to do it. I'm not going to say, you know, I was a regular kid, too. So there were times that I didn't want to practice. I'd rather go out and play. But basically, um, I stuck with it because I truly loved music. And I liked 
kind of got the satisfaction out of somehow realizing that I could I could do this pretty well. So by the time I was about 12, I had a very serious teacher. And um, at that point, I probably knew in retrospect that, mm -hmm. that this was going to be my life. Um, I went on and by the time I was 16, um, I got accepted into the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia mm -hmm. and everything went from there. Um, I always talk about how young pianists uh, spend a lot of their time alone, alone in a room, practicing, perfecting yeah. craft. Everybody out there who has spent a lot of time at the piano or, or other instruments, uh, but especially the piano, knows about what it's like to kind of do that all on your own and then go and do it for a teacher and you know I, I grew up in a in a smaller town in Pennsylvania so I wasn't exposed to a lot of other musicians mm -hmm. until I moved to Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. The reason I'm telling you this part is up until that point I concentrated on solo piano playing but then when I started to meet peers of my own age playing other instruments and singers and interacting with them musically yeah. i realized that maybe playing the piano by myself all the time isn't what i'll do for the rest of my life and i started getting interested in collaborative work with instrumentalists yeah. and some with singers and learning from other musicians you know how True. how they take a breath if they have to and you know things that sometimes you can't um verbalize so clearly but you learn from experience yes my horizons began to be broadened at an earlier age i never would have told you that later on i'd be playing keyboards in a major symphony orchestra but i realize now that mm -hmm. all the fact that i was keeping my mind open to new things yes. all of that was preparing me for for what would come later mm-hmm yeah, that, that's a fantastic background, actually, that you're giving me, because I think this speaks very well about the path that any person, any anyone who wants to become a musician has to go through. You know, professional musicians start when they're very young, when they're just kids. And then there is also this long, very long path that leads you, maybe even in a prestige position, like it happens to you. And how that came about, I mean, in 2001, you were appointed at Yale Field by the great Esapeka Salonen, who was like revolutionizing in a little bit the, the orchestra back in the day and really put the Yale Field really on the map in the sense that, oh, of course, it was already one of the major U.S. symphony orchestras, but Esapeka looked like he was wanted to do something new with the group, with the ensemble, yeah. and really skyrocketed the, the popularity also of the orchestra to a new level. Definitely, definitely. I remember hearing his um, very simple line, I think, when he first joined, we are about the future, is what he said. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is especially relevant now. People are seeing that, you know, symphony orchestras need to keep people coming yes. to hear the concerts. And um, yes. the audiences are getting younger and we need to stay relevant. And Esabeka um, appointed me about halfway through his 17 year tenure with the, the orchestra. It was a wonderful thing because for me, it was just so exciting to be a part of this, um, not just world-class orchestra, but very forward thinking institution, yes. which a lot of that had to do with Asapeka himself. And mm -hmm. um, it was really exciting for me, um, those whole, I think it was seven or eight years, I think before um, Gustavo Dudamel took over 
for him uh, in my time with the orchestra. And uh, it's been wonderful to work with both of them. Yes. But um, I'll always be grateful, you know, to Asabeka <laughs> for for hiring me and and putting me on this kind of new new path. Yes, of course. Yeah, because also you were also featured as a, as a soloist in some of the, the concerts because those were also the times where the Disney Hall was just opening and there was this big deal. I, other musicians, yes. sort of, it was a very big deal for, for, the, for the city because it was a very long process of building that place and it was very expensive and it was like, but it was really giving a proper concert hall to the city, which is one of the, the major music cities in the world. Um, for for any genre, but especially also for classical, and and having a place where you know you could expand also your your horizons as a musician. So did you play by uh, on that beautiful recording? And I think it was made f- probably at the inauguration of uh, the Disney Hall of the of the Rite of Spring with Esopeka Salon and that, because that is probably my own favorite recording of the Rite of Spring ever. You know, I know there are many, many, many fine ones, but that for me is the one to go when I want to listen to <laughs> the Rite of Spring. <laughs> Disney concert hall that we actually had three opening night galas wow. in one week and each program was different and had a different theme and yes the Rite of Spring of course was one of them one of Esapeka's signature pieces and and another evening actually had some Broadway and and movie music and John Williams participated even on the piano yeah I do remember that yes I think he accompanied Josh Groban and Otto McDonald in songs from classic Hollywood films like uh, Two for the Road by Harry Mancini and An Affair to Remember. Yes. It was wonderful, yes. It was extra special because John actually sat down and played so beautifully on the piano one of our three mm-hmm. opening nights. That was memorable. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it was, yes. And for the Disney Hall opening, he also composed a piece called Soundings, which is perhaps one of his most original pieces he ever wrote, either for film or the concert hall. Yes. Um, it's a very interesting to hear John experimenting with strange sounds and acoustics and playing with oral perception. And, I mean, there is also a lot of stuff for piano and keyboards throughout. And in our email conversation preparing this interview, you told me that you also ended up playing this piece with the LA Phil on tour a few years ago, right? That's that's correct. It, it was interesting. We took it on tour. Um, of course, we all fondly remember premiering at, at Walt Disney Concert Hall. And at the time, um, I, I actually brought in Randy Kerber, who's, of course, done many, many things for John. But um, because of the electronics component, yeah. um, especially, uh, Randy was, was coming in and performing those parts, running the electronic 
portion of it that uh, if some people aren't familiar with the piece, there's a section where the hall itself has its own voice actually speaks back to the orchestra. So there's a back and forth between recorded music, the orchestra, parts of the orchestra played previously. And then it's like a call and response from the live musicians back and forth to the hall, which is represented by these electronic recordings. Mm -hmm. And so um, it was interesting to take that on the road, obviously, <laughs> because in each, each uh, city we visited, we of course had to have a sound check and make sure everything was right. And so it was so nice to have Randy along with us on that tour. We had some really good times doing that. But uh, yeah, in that way, Soundings is a very, very special piece of John's. I, I really love that piece. I think that the hall itself was at least part of the inspiration he got for the piece uh -huh. because of its peculiar shape and form. I mean, it's a beautiful building designed by Frank Gehry uh, that is now truly uh, a part of the LA identity of, of the city itself. Um, I've never experienced a live concert there, but I visited the building during a trip I did in LA a few years ago, and the hall itself is almost a, a circle, so... Uh, the sound bounces off in a very specific way there. Yes, there is seating in the round. You, you can sit at any any angle. Um, there's For those who are familiar, there's the, the big pipe organ with the signature curved pipes, which is another great joy of my job, by the mm -hmm. way, playing that. Because of my background with my dad's organ <laughs> stuff, um, I learned organ, which not a lot of pianists do. So I'm lucky enough to play that instrument there. But there are bench seats right under the pipes, which those are the ones that you would face 
right into the face of the conductor, which mm -hmm. some people find very interesting. And of <laughs> or course intimidating, you can, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or it can be many things. <laughs> yeah, it's technically it's a seating in the round, yes. Mm -hmm. But speaking of John, do you remember what was the first time you actually played for him in the orchestra with the LA Field? Because he has a huge history and relationship with the orchestra that dates back since, I guess, now it's like more than 40 years because he, I think his very first concert with the LA Field was in 1978 at the Hollywood Bowl. You know, he was like called by accident in a way because, you know, he had to substitute another conductor. <laughs> that night at the Hollywood Bowl in 1978 really started his own career as a professional conductor, you know, for orchestras. So that is... Amazing to think about. Uh, so what were your first experiences with him as a, in the orchestra? <laughs> it's, it's a great question. You, you won't believe this. But when I, when I won the job, I wasn't able to start for a couple of months, you know. And mm -hmm. this happens, you know, people have other commitments. And yes. I did begin in the summer of 2001, which meant that my first concerts were at the Hollywood Bowl with the orchestra. Well... That year, the first weekend of concerts were the ones with John. <laughs> wow, the, so, the Labor Day weekend concerts, you know, the big ones. <laughs> yeah, but in this case, it was earlier in the season. But anyway, it doesn't matter the date, but it's, okay. it's more about the experience because um, it's pretty exciting, even if you have a lot of experience. When you begin a new job like this, it's pretty exciting. Usually at the first rehearsal, uh, the personnel manager will get up and say to the orchestra, you know, please welcome our new orchestra member, so-and-so, you know. So in that that day, it was me. And then, uh, you know, everybody clapped and it was exciting. And I was all set to begin my music with John Williams as, as the first conductor I'm playing under. Wow. So as what everyone knows, <laughs> yeah, at this point, he had done a, a lot already, you know, with the orchestra. The orchestra knew him well, uh, coming for these annual concerts and uh, what happened was we rehearsed the things he wanted to do first, uh, maybe some of the newer things he had done. I can't remember all of it because it was 21 years ago now. The funniest part is then he gets to talking about the encores and the things that are happening later in the program, which are all his you know, most popular things at, at that time. It was things like Superman March and any, any of the Star Wars and mm -hmm. you know all of that. So he just decides... He looks down at his music and he says, oh, well, we don't have to rehearse this one. And he puts that aside. Then uh, we don't need this one. And then he looks at E.T. No, we don't need this. Well, you're, okay, see you tonight. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like I didn't have any experience. I had experience, but, you know, you kind of think to yourself, it would be nice to have at least one run through of everything. Mm -hmm. With John Williams before the concert anyway and by the first night you know my heart was just thumping away you know until we did the first performance but of course it was so thrilling and so yeah. my very first concerts with the LA Phil as their principal keyboardist were actually with John so that's wow. something I'll never forget what a debut as we've seen it was like a christening of sorts for you and eh? that you spearheaded <laughs> that really started your career with a very in a very big way Given this relationship that John has with the orchestra, of course, I guess for him it's important because he has always this special relationship with musicians and specific musicians and with people. And, and I guess, you know, we know that piano for him is a 
pretty important instrument because he's a pianist, as we were saying a moment ago. He actually is actually a very fine pianist. Absolutely. And, and, and of course, he probably has specific requests, I guess, to his preferred keyboardist when he, whenever he works with a, with, a, with a pianist or a keyboard player. So, and you said me also that you work with him like doing private rehearsals with, with people that he asks to maybe to, to, to see or to listen to. So how that worked? Yes. Well, part of my job in general with the LA Phil uh, is meeting with visiting soloists, visiting artists that are going to be performing with the orchestra. Mm -hmm. Quite often the conductor will want to have a little private rehearsal before getting in front of the orchestra. It, it allows the two people to kind of get their get aligned you know with with the way they're approaching something to to know how they're going to communicate uh without exactly taking the time with the whole orchestra there so part of my job is often to learn uh, a reduction of of the orchestra part mm -hmm. on the piano and then i go into a little room with the conductor and the visiting artist whoever they may be and then they work out what they're going to do and i play the orchestra part and Uh, we jump around to different places and they figure out how they're going to communicate. And then we go out and rehearse with the orchestra. Mm -hmm. So I've done this with John over the years with, a, you know, a diverse group of artists. Like, I mean, Kiri Tikanoa and James Taylor, you know, people like that. Um, the great cellist Lynn Harrell, I've played with him privately for John. So it's kind of all over the place, but mm -hmm. uh, a beautiful kind of, insight into how John works, you know, at a, at a closer range, you know. Mm -hmm, yes, I'm sure it's very interesting to watch him working so closely with musicians and perhaps in situations where he can go more granular or specific in terms of technique and so on. One of the things that always strikes me, and this is something all the musicians I spoke with noted, Uh, is the level of knowledge uh, of all the instruments he has. Yes. Even though he's not a violinist or a cellist or, let's say, a trumpeter, <laughs> he seems to know everything about every instrument to, down to the tiniest detail. And that is something that musicians look at with the utmost admiration. I mean, I saw this when he performed recently here in Milan at La Scala. It was a joy to see how much enthusiasm there was from the orchestra, And it wasn't just reverence and respect, uh, but you could see that they truly seemed engaged with him because of his way of playing with music. Yeah, he's, you know, it's interesting. He's so genteel and, and soft-spoken and, you know, you see this humility and kindness in, in him and, you know, he's got a twinkle in his eye. He's got a great sense of humor. Then when he gets on the podium, He has all that, but he also commands great respect. Mm -hmm. I mean, the minute he picks up the baton, it's just incredible. Um, everyone sits up straighter and they, they play even better. And there's mm -hmm. something just so inspiring about him. You know, there's, he's garnered such great respect, you know, globally. And of course, we all love his music and we love the movies that are associated with it. Sure. But there's a special aura Uh, around him as an artist and when yes. he gets up there it really pushes us all to to really be our best and I think the results are are incredible wherever he goes
That's why I love talking about John Williams with musicians. <laughs> it makes me realize how much music is being made through people and by people. So it's always about the relationship the composer established with the musician, either an ensemble or, or a single one like you. Um, and speaking of that, it looks like that was something in the mind of John Williams when it came to pick a soloist for his latest film project with Steven Spielberg, the Fablemans. So, Joanne, tell me how he decided to have you being the featured soloist on this. This is a question you maybe have to ask John sometime. I, <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, he knows my playing and, and we've known each other. Um, I can just tell you that the phone rang one day and it was this wonderful voice on the other end um, asking me if, if I had any interest <laughs> and was available to do something uh, very special. I could tell from the beginning how personal and special this project was going to be, and it was a great honor to get this phone call. I'm guessing that probably it was the, the special need for some classical music, um, mm -hmm. solo piano music being played. He was familiar with, with my background and my playing, so I'm guessing That's why he thought of me. Um, uh, he knows, you know, I've done a lot of solo piano playing and the standard repertoire and went to Curtis and all of that. So I guess uh, he felt that he could trust me with this very personal project. And mm -hmm. I'm incredibly honored to have gotten that phone call. He explained everything at first, even though I didn't know much about the movie yet. And, and I don't know how much you want to talk about the movie today because I don't want to give away too much mm -hmm. for those who haven't seen it. But the music does play a large part in that. It, it's a big part of the movie. And I, I kind of didn't even realize how big it would be uh, when he first called. So, But he explained to me that Steven Spielberg's mother had played the piano very well. And it was going to be an extremely personal project of Steven's. So immediately I got very interested in, after I accepted, of course, I wanted to know what kind of musician she was and so i was given the opportunity to actually hear some some home recordings of her playing wow um that stephen had had recorded and uh so i had an idea of what her spirit was like through her playing yeah uh, i was able to get some deep insight into her personality as as a musician and i tried to inject some of that into my playing mm -hmm. although john encouraged me to kind of Be, be myself as well, and then just use use her spirit kind of as a guide. So, so that's what I tried to do. And this was uh, 
great responsibility as this is such a personal project for, for Stephen and John. So I guess you felt the weight of the job <laughs> uh, that you were asked to do because of the connection that this film has to Stephen's personal story. Uh, you know, let's remind to our listeners that The Fablemans is based on Spielberg's family history and him growing up as a child and teenager in Arizona and then California. But as probably now everyone knows, the film is not just a rosy memory of how he fell in love with movie making. Uh, it's much more than that. It's about his parents and their story and how they split and how that event became a catalyst in Steven's life, informing also his films later on. As you said, Steven's mother was a pianist, so he grew up in a musical household. Yes. And music was part of his life since a very early age. And the character of Mitzi, played in the film by Michelle Williams, is seen playing several classical piano pieces. So was that repertoire featured in, on the soundtrack something actually based on Stephen's memory of his mom playing exactly those pieces? Yes. Yes, that's a resounding yes to that question. Um, every single one of the pieces were played by his mother in the home growing up. And I know about that feeling because uh, my own father, who's 99 right now, bless wow. him, he'll be 100 in February. <laughs> I, I still can't, when I hear the pieces that he used to play regularly in the house, I have an emotional reaction to it. And so does my brother. You know, that's something that sticks with you for a mm. lifetime. If you've grown up with music in the house, with someone playing an instrument, that's going to be a big part of your of your spirit. Yes. And this is what I saw. You know, it's interesting. I recorded those solo pieces before the film was being shot. When I got that initial call from John, uh, the whole, this is kind of interesting. He was, it was the summer of 2021. July, maybe it was late June, but John was going to be leaving for Tanglewood, um, his annual trip and, and time there in about three weeks, I think. When he made this call to me, he listed uh, about eight or nine <laughs> classical works. And he said, if we could just get these down, you know, in the next couple of weeks, maybe over at Fox or whatever. <laughs> and I thought, wow, you know, I was busy <laughs> with the orchestra. I was, But of course, you know, made this a priority. Okay, you know, we're going to get these pieces going. So basically what I did was I went over to Fox Studios and um, on the soundstage, there was just the piano, microphones. Um, I worked under John's guidance. Uh, we went through each piece and he had me uh, play it the way I wanted to play it. Then he had me do some things where I was supposed to make mistakes on purpose to sound like mm. someone practicing mm -hmm. and then and then maybe correct those mistakes, go back. And so I did all kinds of experimental things like that. And we had a great time. He, he was giggling and um, <laughs> it was kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine how special it was again, uh, working with John on an almost intimate level in terms of music making. Um, so let's listen to one of those pieces featured on the Fablemans soundtrack album. This is from Sonatina in C major, opus 36, movement number three, Spiritoso, by Italian composer Muzio Clementi with solo pianist Joanne Pierce Martin. Mm -hmm. 
This was Sonatina in C major by Muzio Clementi with Joanne Pierce Martin on piano, one of the several classical pieces featured in The Fabled Mans. So, Joanne, do you have any specific anecdote or memory of recording those pieces that stayed with you? Well, uh, after we got everything recorded, I was told Sean Murphy was there, the great sound engineer, was recording me, and it was just us. And Then uh, Sean said, well, Stephen is somewhere on the lot. He'd like to come over and, um, and hear what we're doing, you know? So basically I was finished recording all the solo stuff, but they said, would you mind waiting around? Because Stephen was on the lot and he was at the time putting finishing touches on the West Side Story film, oh, actually. Mm -hmm. So all of that was exciting to me because I'm just a West Side Story fanatic myself. <laughs> so anyway, eventually... He walked in and uh, with a cigar and, and uh, Sean Murphy said, well, we recorded everything. Do you want to hear that or do you want to hear it live? And he said, I want to hear it live. And he <laughs> took my arm and dragged me out there. So then I started playing, if you can imagine, these pieces that he, Stephen had grown up hearing in his home with his mother playing. So I started to play one thing, one of the early classical pieces, maybe it was the Kulau or Clementi. Mm -hmm. And I just played, you know, like a page of it or something. And I said, something like that. And Stephen said, no. And I thought, oh my God, he's saying no. You know, and he said, no, not something like that. Exactly like that, he said. <laughs> and he was very encouraging and it made me laugh. And then um, I started to play the Bach piece, the uh, slow movement from his concerto in D minor, th this is used in the film. I started to play it and it's slow and incredibly beautiful. And I had a different feeling without looking at him. I could sense something different about the energy next to me. I, I don't really know how to explain it. Yeah, I just had to keep playing. I didn't stop that one. So I just kept playing and, And then out of the corner of my eye, I realized he had taken out his iPhone and he was starting to film me playing. And a lot of session musicians know he, he's well known for this. He goes yes. into a lot of the scoring sessions and he loves to take just video with his phone of the musicians doing their thing, playing John's music. And in this case, I was playing Bach's music. I just kept playing and playing. And the piece is probably three, three and a half minutes long. I finished the whole thing. And then uh, when I looked at him, he was clearly emotional. Mm. And I, I understand that feeling. Like we said, we, we all know. What was interesting was he then said something uh, like, this piece, it's, it's going to have some 
some relevance in this film, some great relevance. And it was just me and him in the room at that time. And I realized that that I saw him sprout an idea right there in front of me. And wow. Wow, that's fantastic. It was amazing. It was amazing. Yeah, I'm sure it was, absolutely. So let's have another musical interlude now with a piece that we just mentioned, the Adagio from the Concerto in D minor by Johann Sebastian Bach, performed by Joanne Pierce Martin.
Joan Pierce Martin performing the Adagio from Concerto in D minor by Johann Sebastian Bach, as heard on the soundtrack of The Fablemans. That piece plays in a key moment, and without giving anything away to our listeners, it's perhaps the most powerful scene of the film. It's true. Now that I think about it, it's the first time that Spielberg uses so much classical music in one of his films. You know, he usually has John Williams at his side, so he feels pretty comfortable to have original music by him, of course. But whenever he's decided not to use John, he picks these <laughs> fancy composers like Bach or Leonard sure. Bernstein. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Stephen has an incredible musical sense. I was struck by that during this whole project. I kind of didn't realize how deeply he understood music before this. Mm -hmm. I had an idea, but... He's really a natural. And, you know, seeing his friendship with John and the way they work together and, and bounce ideas off each other, um, it, it was very, very special to see mm -hmm. during this project. And I think he absorbs a lot of John's great musicianship into his own. Oh, very much so, yes. And it's incredible to realize that they are collaborating for 50 years now because they met yes. the first time in 1972. And they got along for such a long time and achieved all that they achieved. Uh, but it feels like they're still two youngsters, you know, <laughs> having so much fun working together, as you said. It's so true. And, and this is what gives the Fablemans an even more special feeling, in my opinion, as John really reserved a very quiet and almost understated role for his own original music in this film. There is perhaps just 20 minutes of original score, and, and the music always enters very quietly, but always in a very in very important moments, adding depth and, and introspection with great delicacy. And, and it's mostly piano solos, and, and you had to perform those in addition to all the classical pieces. So how that was planned? Um, did John send you the music beforehand to take a look, or did you go cold to the studio and played it like a studio musician. <laughs> I mean, I spoke with many studio musicians who played for John over the years and and some still play for him. And and they all say that it's always a surprise when you work with John and you may find something out of the ordinary the day you are <laughs> on the scoring stage. Yeah, what, what you're saying is absolutely true. Um, session musicians, uh, when you go and do a session, quite often you do open the book and to see what's in store for the day. <laughs> John's parts are, are just so fabulous and quite involved and you really have to be a good good reader to, mm -hmm, to get through yeah. it right away and it's that's kind of like what my work is at the LA Phil as well mm -hmm. um, although we get things ahead of time but but we do play a lot of new music so yes. you, you got to be a good reader to do this stuff but in this case um, this was a special case uh, John had been working on a lot of his solo piano tunes that he was writing. He did request that I go over to his home uh, to work privately with him about one week before the first sessions with orchestra. Mm -hmm. So um, this was a little bit complicated at the time because there was quite a bit of COVID. Oh yeah. Around then. And um, some of the uh, dates were, were pushed back because of it. And I had a lot of trepidation whether or not all of this would go through at the right times for me. It was very complicated because my schedule, you know, with the LA and Phil is, is very demanding. And <laughs> yeah, so I had carved out the time for this very special project. But mm -hmm. in the end, yes, later than originally scheduled, 
I did go over to his home and we had a, a special session together where he first showed me the main theme um, from the Fablemans. And then we, I just kind of read it through in front of him and, and we discussed certain aspects of it. Um, he was still experimenting with a few things, but basically had it down. I was so struck with how beautiful it was. As you said, in a way, there's, there may be less music when you talk about the actual minutes that you count that John wrote for this film, but you know, that's part of his greatness is to know when and where to do what, to do essentially nothing at times. And it's, I mean, the use of his original music in this film, it is just perfect. And um, once you see it, you'll, you'll agree wholeheartedly. I actually went to see it a second time last night. So the whole wow. thing is very fresh, fresh in, in your my mind. mind. <laughs> I I had gone to the premiere before this, um, and it was incredible. I was a guest of John's. My husband and I were both his guests, and we sat with him. And uh, honestly, I was a little bit stressed out listening to the the soundtrack with the film because I didn't know how much would be used. I didn't know anything. Okay, so sure. I, I was pleased with the results. Okay. But I felt <laughs> immediately, I felt, I got to go see this movie again because I think I missed about two minutes of dialogue back there because I was listening. Because I was to focusing too much on the music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's usually what film music fans do whenever they watch a film for the first time, especially if it's John Williams. Of course. <laughs> so let's listen to the beautiful main theme from The Fabled Mass by John Williams with a solo piano performed by. Joanne Pierce Martin.
Joan Pierce Martin performing The Fablemans by John Williams. The first time I heard it, I was both surprised and moved. It felt like John was speaking profoundly about his friend Stephen and at the same time making a beautiful statement of simplicity. Um, to me, it almost feels like a Chopin mazurka on many levels because it's simple yet has so many layers that you can peel off and admire the thought process behind, you know? Absolutely. It, that theme is, is so precious. I, you know, it, yes, it has a simplicity to it. The same way you would look at a Mozart, maybe a Mozart slow movement, and you'd say, oh, it's so simple, but at mm -hmm. the same time, it's so great. Because I, I think the Fableman's main theme, it, it's just so perfectly crafted, but it's also a mix of something like the simplicity and beauty of a perfectly crafted, maybe Mozart or possibly Chopin, but mixed with, you know, he has a few harmonies in there that are a bit more modern, so to speak, you know, yes. some major sevens and, you know, things that, that bring it forward in time a little bit, making it almost timeless. Um, but yet the simplicity and the clarity it's all there, but as you say, still somehow with his his print on it, his personal print that he just manages to put on everything. And it's just fascinating how he, he can do this. And yes. it, you look at it and it's just a simple left-hand accompaniment, a beautiful single note melody, and yet it's just perfection and complex in its own way but yet the ultimate in, in simplicity and beauty yeah and also the other feeling that i got was as if that piece would always existed somehow and uh -huh. he found it you know yeah like yeah it's perfect you know like as if it was always there yeah. but yet he seems to know secrets where to find these beautiful melodies and you know, of course his career is so i mean we can talk for an hour about <laughs> uh -huh. his many many melodies I know, you know, this particular melody, I just have to say, I, it's so, I'm sure it's colored by his personal relationship with Stephen and also with, with his parents, especially his mother, you know, kind of coupled with, with his expertise at the piano, you know, knowing how to write for the piano and then kind of injecting all this personal feeling into it. And I'm sure it had to kind of inform his creative process in some way you know in, at the sessions when if Steven Spielberg is always there you know he got up on the podium with John before we started recording with the orchestra for the Fablemans and they proceeded to talk several minutes to all of us just about their friendship and how this was you know probably their last collaboration mm. in, in this way it was so beautiful to see you know, it's obvious when you watch them working together during the process, how special their working relationship is and the friendship comes through, comes through in that respect, too. But sure. to see them get up and speak to us all about the actual friendship and the fact that it's 50 years. I think that seeped into some of our play in the sessions, you know, it made it extra tender, extra special. Yes. And I think it, it comes through in the soundtrack. I really think so. Oh, very much so. Totally. Yes. Again, when they both speak about themselves to the orchestra, it's another way to show their respect and admiration toward 
the musicians who bring the music to life. And of course, John is there conducting and inspiring you with his own musicianship, but they know uh, how crucial it is to create a certain atmosphere to get the best out of you guys and add that level of magic, I would say. Yeah. However, um, I am curious if John ever said anything to you about his original music having to coexist with the various classical pieces. Even though John's music doesn't sound at all like the other classical selections, the two words come together quite naturally, I would say. Oh, absolutely. The way he took um, the Haydn sonata in C major, which is part of the uh, end credits. Mm -hmm. um, of course, he, he himself loves Haydn. I, I know this. But I love that he, he selected that piece and then kind of orchestrated it. The piano starts, starts out. And we had a great fun at, at the sessions doing yeah. that. There were a lot of a lot of different takes, trying different things. And even the main theme, um, he was experimenting, even at the sessions, we would sit there during 10 minute breaks and he would sit down and, and try something. And then I would sit down and he was experimenting with adding some mordants, a little bit of ornamentation, almost Baroque-like into his main theme. And, and some of that made it in into the final product and some didn't. And, it was fascinating to, to still see his wheels turning, even at that later part of the process. When you were speaking about the inspiring atmosphere on the scoring stage, it came to my mind how that moment is always crucial for John. Uh, as for him, it's never a matter of just recording the music, but it's an integral part of the whole music-making process. And also being able to find uh, solutions on the spot. You know, oh, yeah. some musicians told me that it's not unusual for him to rewrite cues on the podium and changing things and going and stuff like that. So I guess... That's something incredible to witness because only if you have the greatest skills, you can feel so secure right. in doing that. I mean, he still writes just with pencil and paper and does everything by himself. So that's even more impressive on that regard. Yes. Um, the score also features a great amount of beautiful Celesta solos performed by Robert Thies. Yes. Can you tell me how that worked out? Yeah, actually, Rob is a good friend of mine and a wonderful musician. And I was going to bring this up in our interview because Rob played so beautifully. There's a lot of featured Celesta playing on here. You know, we all know that John many times has used, he loves the Celesta and the Harry Potter theme. And, you know, quite often he uses it for these kind of mystical, magical effects. Yeah, like like the magic dust that he sprinkles over 
the music, you know, <laughs> like even pieces like E.T., you know, there's a lot of Celeste in E.T. as well, you know. Absolutely. And, you know, you're, most people know the Celeste in the classical repertoire, maybe most famously in the Nutcracker suite. But in this case, in the Fablemans, it, it struck me last night seeing the film again. He uses the Celeste for great emotional kind of sad uh, heart aching moments and and it is so appropriate it what he does with it and the way you know of course the way it applies to the film it it is just absolute perfection session before the orchestra came in John called it wasn't really a session but it was sort of a setup session where he wanted to make sure that we had all the keyboards where we wanted them sounding the way they should be and this was not just the piano which was featured heavily but the celesta and also Tom Rainier was on synthesizer for whatever needs might come up for that. And sometimes John uses um, synthesized Celeste sound, sometimes uh, just yeah. the regular. I think it was Randy Kerber who explained to me how he came up with the sound of the Celeste that was used then in a Harry Potter. It was Correct. very fascinating. Yeah. Correct. Yes. Actually, it's a funny story. I wanted to tell you about that session, uh, the, the advanced session, which was the day before everybody else came. So uh, Tom Rainier, Rob Thies, and myself, we all went over to um, Sony in this case, uh, which is where the rest of the, the scoring was done. We showed up and there was also going to be some playing of a Scott Joplin rag, ragtime piece called Elite Syncopations that I was preparing for the film as well. They wanted me to play it on, on an old fashioned tack piano, you know, with thumbtacks put in the hammers and it sounds very metallic and like an old rinky-tink piano. That's the effect they wanted. That was, I guess, Stephen and John's idea. They wanted that sound. So a tech piano had been brought in uh, for these sessions. And one of the things John wanted to do in this advanced session was to check out the sound of that. So I sat down at that piano that they brought in. And I started to play the Scott Joplin and John said, it sounds too good somehow. <laughs> <laughs> the piano just sounds like it's in too good a shape. And, you know, they're looking. 
And then somebody said, hey, over there in the corner, you know, there's that dusty old upright piano. I think that has tacks in it. It just sits there. So like three stagehands pull this thing out and they dust it off. And, and it's just dreadful, this thing. And <laughs> I sat down and I started to play the Scott Joplin. John said, that's marvelous. That's fantastic. <laughs> we'll use this, he said. <laughs> Lovely. And it was it was absolutely hilarious. So I spent a little bit of time on there just kind of finding my way, uh, just seeing how it felt to the fingers, making sure all 88 keys were playing, you know, that sort of thing. And in the end, um, you do hear the, the Joplin in, in the, the film, film uh, two different times, actually. And it is on that, that old piano that they dragged out of the corner. And it, it does sound good. <laughs> <laughs> this is such a fun story. I mean, thank you for sharing that, Joanne. Uh, it's amazing to think that's something that was left in a, in a corner of the studio that nobody uh, thought would be used again was suddenly brought back to life by <laughs> John Williams. Yeah. It's one of those stories where you can see how much music is something being done in the moment, on the spot, you know, and sometimes ideas come in the most unusual way. Yeah. And, and speaking instead of John Williams' relationship with the piano, given that you are a pianist too, how much, according to you, John's experience back in the day when he was a young pianist playing jazz and also being a session musician playing under Arthur Newman, Dimitri Jomkin, Bernard Herrmann, and all the greats of that era, how much that was influential in his musicianship, according to you. Did he ever talk with you about his early days? You know, um, a few years ago, we were in a, a small social situation with him and uh, the wonderful Ginny Mancini, Henry Mancini's widow at the time, who sadly passed away last year herself. Uh, but they were dear, dear, dear friends of John's. And as you know, he did a lot for Henry, for Henry Mancini. Yeah. And recently kind of reunited with some other great musicians you probably know to do a uh, an upcoming tribute to Henry Mancini. At any rate, yes, he uh, it's not the time or the place when you're you're on the job doing something like this, but but he you know he you kind of have to draw it out of him a little bit because he's he's quite kind of humble and you know. He doesn't, but of course, you know, the, the piano, I think, is his first love. That's the center of his musicianship. He plays so beautifully. And I, I really will never forget hearing him play at that mm. opening concert at Disney Hall. Just And that was in a jazz vein. Just a beautiful freedom at the keyboard and expression that that just comes straight from, from the heart, from the soul. I mean, he's he's a beautiful, natural musician. Precious memories 
Selecting souvenirs and living life the way we please. In summertime, the sun will shine. In winter, we'll drink summer wine. And every day that you are talking a lot about specific stories unless you really pull it out of them so mm -hmm. I think I might have asked him once about carousel or or West Side Story you know think playing on that and um I don't really remember anything specific he said but what I do remember is kind of being able to identify with it because you know it's funny as pianists I go back to when I was talking to you earlier alone in a room perfecting your craft and and what I forgot to tell you about that part of things is other musicians, they get to play in orchestra at an early age. They get to play in bands, marching bands, all socially interact. And yes. Quite often pianists don't get to do that until they start playing some chamber music, which in my case happened as a teenager. The thing is, it's a whole different set of skills to get in the middle or in some cases the back of an orchestra be following someone who's giving musical direction from quite a few feet away yeah. <laughs> and figure out how you can still express yourself as an artist 
but still be a part of the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. You know, we did discuss things like that at some point. Um, that, that's because, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It can be, I, I think, especially challenging for keyboard players in that regard. So mm -hmm. um, I remember talking to him a little bit about, about that at some point. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. I think his background as a pianist was essential in the formation of his musical voice. Also because he was breathing um, very special air of great music making in those days in Hollywood with, with the people we were mentioning a moment ago. You know, it's impressive to think how much he absorbed from all that. And yes. instead, talking about the style of the playing in the Faber Mess, the score is clearly written with the voice of John Williams and you can recognize all of his fingerprints throughout. Yeah. But there is a sort of French atmosphere in some moments, I would say. Um, yeah. There is a piece called Reverie that is almost satire-like. Yes. Did he ever talk with you about style in those terms or, or was that not necessary? Because, you know, the moment you look at the score, you immediately know in what world you are living in. Right. Um, well, in this case, to answer your question, of course, John had been working with me when I recorded all the solo pieces, and there is a Sati piece that I recorded. It is not on the soundtrack, okay. but that must have been in John's mind. Um, obviously, it was on the list of pieces that Leia, uh, Stephen's mother, had played. Mm -hmm. So, yes, um, I believe when I hear Reverie, when I first heard it, of course, he must have been thinking, you know, some kind of, homage to to Sati or at least going for that flavor uh, I never asked to me it, it seemed kind of obvious um, but but I never asked him directly about that but that's what I feel uh, mm -hmm. when I when I hear it It's such a beautiful piece and, and your playing is magnificent as the emotional power of the piece comes exactly from the touch and the sensitivity of the player here. 
I mean, the music stays on a very delicate balance between sweetness and sorrow, and that is something that is carried by the person who plays the music, in this case, you. And again, it's another testament of how John always writes for the people, as I said <laughs> a million times on this podcast. Uh, here, he is writing for Stephen, but also for his parents and their memory, and he's aware that he needs a great instrumentalist to bring all of that alive. And his ability to connect with people, especially musicians, is perhaps one of his greatest gifts because I think he's deeply in connection with his own humanity. Absolutely. I, mean, I think he's a great human being, but still a human being. So he's able to see and read people very well. Uh, like I said before, I mean, the way he treated the orchestra here in Milan during the concert at La Scala was absolutely a, a, a splendid example of that. It's true. We're, we're all very fortunate to, to be a part of it. As the final question, Joanne, I'd love to bring it back to the title of the show, The Legacy of John Williams. Um, this word, legacy, is perhaps becoming a bit overused nowadays, but if there is anyone who deserves this, is John Williams. So what do you think will be the legacy of John Williams in the years to come? Wow, that's such a tough question. Mm. It really is, because it's hard to narrow it down. He's, he's had such a gigantic effect, not just on the music world, but kind of the world in general. And I, I think it all comes down to what you were just saying, the fact that he's, he's a human being and interacts and empathizes and just feeds off other human beings um, in a very special way. And, and that informs his writing so much. And I think the people who go on, you know, it's, it's obvious that Everything is already documented, you know, it's um, we're always going to have the wonderful music that he wrote for films and and his concert music and which is something that he is going to concentrate more on mm. now. But I think in all aspects of music, you know, his legacy will live on as one of the greatest living composers, you know, ever in, in the 20th century, the 21st. For, for all time. I mean, this is not someone who will ever be forgotten. No, and, absolutely. Uh, his imprint on music in general, not just film music, but every, every time you think of a beautifully 
written tune or, you know, quite often it's going to be one of John's tunes. And that's not something that's going to go away in the next couple of decades. I think it's going to be a lasting legacy up there with, with the greatest classical composers that we all talk about now. Perfect summation, I think. And and speaking of what you just said about him concentrating more on concert music, I think I he said that he he's going to write a piano concerto. <laughs> like, he is for Emmanuel X. Like at, at his age and say, okay, let's now write a piano concerto because he wrote concerti for virtually every instrument <laughs> in the orchestra, save for the piano, which of course it's a, it's a different thing because I guess sometimes it can be, you know, scary for a composer you know, to face those big literature of piano concerti. But, you know, he written two violin concerti, which is, again, another instrument which is demanding for any composer to face yes. a, a challenge. But it, in the case of piano, it, it's so interesting that it's only now he decided to say, okay, I will do it. And I wonder <laughs> why it is this way, because he probably now figured out what what kind of piano concerto he wants to write, probably. I don't know. Probably. How wonderful. I mean, I can't wait to hear it. Joanne, thank you for, for all the time we spent together today and for going in so much detail about your wonderful experience of working with John Williams and Steven Spielberg. It was truly fascinating and inspiring. So nice talking to you. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you. All the best to you, Joanne. You too. Ciao, Mori. Ciao, ciao, ciao. Bye. Bye-bye.